Thanks, Evan, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Central. Evan, just prayed. My name's Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad uh, you braved the weather to come out and join us uh, this Sunday. Uh, if you've been a part of our community for a long time, or if you're newer to Christ Central, we're really glad you're here. Uh, let me also say that if you're someone who's had faith in Jesus for a long time, or if you're someone who's more skeptical, uh, but you're curious enough to ask your questions and come to church, we're really, really glad that you're here as well. We are a church for the sure and the unsure, the, the believer and the doubter. And so we just want to say welcome to all of you this morning. We're beginning a new series in the Old Testament book of Daniel this morning, and we've titled this series, Faith in a Strange Land. Uh, Daniel is the main character of this book, and he is forcibly removed from his hometown. He's displaced from his culture which valued and affirmed his faith in God, and he is placed in a new super city, a global power. And the culture in which he finds himself is not just in opposition to his faith, but is purposeful to coerce him away from the faith that he affirms. And today in 2021 America, we find ourselves living in a culture that does not affirm Christian values and behaviors. We're, we're living in a culture that's not just pushing against Christianity. In many ways, we are being coerced away from faith in Jesus. And so the question that I want to ask, and I think the book of Daniel asks, is what does faith and remaining faithful in this strange land look like? We're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 together this morning. Uh, it is our custom to stand as we read God's word. I'm going to go ahead and give you warning. It's a long passage. I'm reading the whole chapter of chapter 1. So bend your knees. Don't pass out. Uh, stand now uh, as we give attention to God's word to us this morning from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the use who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we need to hear from you this morning. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would anoint the word of God so that our spirits might be spoken to and that we might be transformed. Our ears open to hear, our hearts receptive, and us being willing to walk in the truths in which you speak to us this morning. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Would you speak to us now, Holy Spirit? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, before we planted Christ Central Church seven years ago, I worked in campus ministry for 10 years. I loved and still love campus ministry. I love that we as a church are still deeply connected to college students, many of you who are here and to the universities in our area. But without fail, every year that I served in campus ministry, I would receive many phone calls or emails from parents of incoming students. And they wanted, these parents wanted to make sure that I knew their child's name and that they really, really wanted their child to get plugged in and connected to our ministry. And I could sense the heightened anxiety and fear of these parents as they sent their 18-year-olds away from home for the first time in their lives. I mean, these parents raised their children to trust and to believe in Jesus, raised them to love the church, and now they're sending them off to the university campus, filled with anxiety and fear, right? wondering, would the faith that they raised their child with be resilient in the face of opposition that they would surely face at the university? As a parent of three boys, I can already understand the anxiety and fear uh, and can imagine how difficult of a day that will be for me when I let three, my three boys leave the house for the first time and, and move away. But every year, it wasn't just parents that I would talk with. I would talk with freshmen who had just left home for the first time. And I would have conversation after conversation with these freshmen who were wavering in their faith in Jesus. They found themselves immersed in a culture that was not just opposing faith in Jesus intellectually, but it was also a culture imposing pressures to embody behaviors and values that were contrary to their faith in Christ. These parents and students were asking, how do you have faith and be faithful in a culture that not only opposes your faith, but is trying to coerce you to believe something altogether different? And I think that's a question that's not just for the university context. It is a question that every single one of us must ask ourselves because the culture in which we now live, especially in Durham, North Carolina, has moved beyond seeing the value of Christian faith and how Christians can, can contribute to the good of society. On the contrary, oftentimes Christians and Christianity can be viewed as detrimental to society. That's what it means when you hear sociologists say that we now live in a post-Christian 
culture. It is a culture that has moved beyond seeing the value of Christianity. And so I want us to look at Daniel chapter 1 and how we remain faithful in this strange land. And the first thing that I want us to see is that we all will face cultural coercion. Facing cultural coercion. Look at verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Israel, they were the holy people of God, a symbol of love, peace, and justice. Jerusalem, the center city, is invaded by a giant foreign power, Babylon. And I don't think we can jump over some of the, the details in these first few verses because they are revealing something extremely important. And it is this, that Israel being taken into Babylonian captivity was not just political warfare. It was spiritual warfare. It was theological warfare. Look, look with me at some of the details. The king of Judah, the ruler of God's people, is defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to have to say Nebuchadnezzar a lot this morning. Sure, I'm going to mess it up at some point. Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and, and Nebuchadnezzar actually had multiple titles, king of Babylon being one of them, but his most humble of titles was king of the universe. Right, how about that for a business card? Nebuchadnezzar, king of the universe. And this king of Babylon is declaring that the Babylonian empire, it is the biggest and the baddest. That in fact, this victory declares that the god of Babylon, Marduk, is greater than the god of Israel. So verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar takes vessels out of the temple, places them in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar is destroying what Israel holds sacred and is placing it as an offering to his God. And he doesn't just bring items, he brings people. Look at verse 3. Bring people of Israel, some of royal family, youths without defect. Nebuchadnezzar only wants the best and the brightest. He wants the best young leaders. And so he takes Daniel and his three friends, who we know are teenagers at this time. We also know that they're extremely wealthy. They would have been valedictorians of their class. They all probably dated the head cheerleader and were all Abercrombie and Fitch models, right? So what, what is King Nebuchadnezzar doing? He is seeking to weaken Israel by capturing the next generation. He is seeking to weaken Israel by capturing the next generation. If there ever was a time and a call for the church to care for our children and the youth, it's right here. Because the tactic of the enemy in spiritual warfare is to take out the next generation. Now, why, why do they have to be males, good-looking males without defect? It's not so Nebuchadnezzar could be surrounded by this good-looking boy band. Right? This was also spiritual in the ancient Near East, when you sacrifice to your God, you would sacrifice your male animal without defect. So what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing is waging spiritual warfare. He's making a sacrifice to his God and is making a statement that my God is bigger than your God. And he's forcing these four young boys to answer the question, why are you going to trust a defeated God? So let me ask you, why would you trust the God of the Bible? Today in our society, we are being forced to ask, why be a Christian when it seems like Christianity has lost? 
Why believe in Jesus in a culture that is hostile to our faith? So don't think that these first few verses are just random details because they are revealing something paramount to understanding the book of Daniel, revealing something paramount to understanding the whole Bible and the Christian life. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And what you'll read in Genesis to Revelation, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is that there is a great battle ensuing, and it's cosmic and spiritual in nature. It is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And so what King Nebuchadnezzar does next is purposeful, to coerce Daniel and his three friends away from the kingdom of God towards the kingdom of darkness. He lays out a three-year plan to reprogram them into Babylonians. It's a three-year cultural coercion plan, and it's all about identity. The first thing he does is he renames them. Daniel, which means God is my judge, is now Belteshazzar. We don't know the full meaning of the name, but we do know that Baal is the Babylonian god, the pagan god Baal. So God is my judge to now Baal is my god. Second thing that Nebuchadnezzar does is he re-educates them. We know from verse 17 that it's successful because Daniel and his friends mastered the language, the literature, the myths, the legends. They learned the worldview of Babylon. And then lastly, they're given the king's food. I mean, they're offered the delicacies of Babylon, the best food and the best wine. And this offering was not just so that they could taste the best delicacies of, of Babylon. They were offered this food two to three times a day at set times. Right? The, these boys were not in control of their resources. It would be brought to them at set times. And we've all seen this warfare tactic before, right? Whether it be in a movie or a book. It's a ploy to brainwash people to become dependent on the provider of the food. So this is my point. King Nebuchadnezzar is very intentional and purposeful to reprogram, to assimilate these four boys into Babylon, to coerce them away from their identity in God to finding their identity as Babylonians. There's so many ways that I could apply this uh, to us, and I just want to kind of go in one direction. And a reference, a book that I mentioned last spring when this pandemic hit by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. It's titled A Faith for Exiles. Highly recommend it. Uh, Kinnaman and Matlock suggest that for those of us in North America or who are living in the cultural West, we find ourselves now living in digital Babylon. That the power that is waging war and coercing us today is not one global empire. It's not, a did, it's not a global empire, but it's a digital empire. It is the digital world in which we live. The results of Kinnaman and Matlock's research reveal, this is staggering, reveals that the typical young person spends 20 times more hours per year using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. That the typical 23-year-old who calls themselves a Christian spends 2,767 hours a year on a screen and just 153 hours a year going to church, reading the Bible, praying, listening to Christian content, or just talking about faith. 20 times more hours a year. Being coerced and influenced by digital Babylon than the God of the Bible. And if you want to get scared... Some of you have seen it. Go watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. 
because it reveals that there is a purpose and an intent behind our digital world to coerce and to shape us and to form us so that our identity is not primarily being a child of God, but rather as one who belongs in this new Babylon. The cultural powers are intentional and purposeful. Our culture tells us, go with your heart, go with the flow. Our culture is not defined by a hierarchy, by a God who holds all authority and a God who gives us an identity. I mean, we look at anyone and everyone on the internet, right? People that should have no authority and no power wield extreme power and authority because the power of the hashtag and the retweet is real, right? We learn through the screen who we are to be and we are being reprogrammed. We are being told to create our own identity, that we're free to determine who we are. But little do we know that this freedom our culture praises is no freedom at all. It's just captivity to a different power, facing cultural coercion. The second thing I want us to look at is remaining resilient, remaining resilient. In the book, Faith for Exiles, they divide people who grew up as Christians into four differing groups based on where they find themselves now in relation to their faith. And this is the way they break it down. The first group is they name prodigals, people who grew up in the Christian home and no longer call themselves Christians. The second group they title nomads. These are people who would identify as a Christian but are no longer involved in in the church. They haven't been to church in over six months or more. The third group is habitual churchgoer. Those who describe themselves as Christians would attend church at least once per month, might even serve at church, but do not hold to core beliefs and behaviors of an engaged follower of Jesus. And the last group they title the resilient disciple. And the way they define the resilient disciple is saying there's four things true of them. One, they attend church at least once a month. Two, they firmly trust the authority of the Bible. Three, they're committed to Jesus personally and affirm that Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And fourth, they express the desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. That's what a resilient, how they define resilient disciple. Can you guess the percentage of resilient disciples in North America? 10%. 10%, which means 90% have been coerced away. 10%, that's not much. But let, let me shine some hope into this. We cannot forget that we serve a God who conquered through a cross. That we serve a God who conquered through what appears to be foolishness to our world, but it is the wisdom and the victory of God. And we cannot forget that Jesus and 12 resilient disciples changed the world. Daniel shows us how to remain resilient in the face of cultural coercion. Look at verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. This is the key verse. This is the hinge verse of our passage. Daniel resolved. His heart was steadfast. His deepest inner desire was to remain faithful. Daniel was committed to not dissolve into the culture of Babylon. He was not going to allow Babylon to wash him away. And the way he did this, and it might seem small, but he resisted the king's food and wine. That's what he did. He resisted the king's food and wine. Why would Daniel do that? Well, first, let me tell you why he didn't do it. He didn't do it as some fancy diet uh, that he and his friends were committed to. Right? This, this is not a proof text for veganism. 
right? Sadly, there is a thing called the Daniel diet. Uh, but Daniel and his friends did not do this diet to get six-pack abs. Uh, the second thing I've got to say is that some scholars have suggested that Daniel and his re- friends resisted the king's food and wine because it wasn't kosher. And I don't think that holds either because wine was not forbidden in the Old Testament law. I think there's really only one reason that makes sense of why Daniel and his three friends would do this. I think it's because these four teenagers were stripped away from their families, renamed, indoctrinated into Babylon. Everything about their life was taken away. And so this was the one small choice that they could make to remind their hearts to trust God and not the God of Babylon. This was the one habit that they could hold on to that would, would remind them of their identity as being a child of God. Two to three times a day, the food would come. And it was a reminder, we depend on God. We are children of God. We are his and he is mine. If you've been around Christ Central for a time, you've heard at least one of us talk about the power of habits, how habits shape our hearts, desires, and loves. This is why digital Babylon is so powerful. The amount of times during the day that you and I look at news, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you name it. We say that we trust in Jesus. We can say that our identity is a son and daughter of God, but then we spend just 156 hours a year being reminded this is true while we spend 2,762 hours being told by a screen what our identity is or should be. So habits like daily prayer and Bible reading and observing the Sabbath once a week in solitude and silence are small choices that we make to remind ourselves, God, I am yours and you are mine. I am above all things a child of God. I am a Christian. I am in Christ. Our culture tells us that we have the power of elective identity. We all can curate who we want to be, right? We can easily do that on social media. Small habits create intimacy with Jesus where we hear from him, we talk with him, we reorient our lives around him, and it's these small habits that lead to a lifetime of transformation, which enables resilience in the face of cultural coercion. If you were to read the whole book of Daniel in one sitting, you would see that Daniel is being challenged with increasing pressures as he gets older. Here in chapter 1, he doesn't eat the king's food and wine. Later, he's going to be tested in public worship. And then later, after that, he'll be tested in his prayer life with a clear threat of death. These temptations in Daniel's life become more intense. The pressure gets turned up the older he gets. And it is the habits of Daniel as a teenager that shapes him to become an old man faithful to God even when death is on the line. Daniel is faithful in small things in his daily habits. And those shape and form him into a resilient disciple who is willing to die for his God. A prayer that I pray for myself, and that I pray for my family, and that I pray for you, Christ Central, is that every single one of us would be 90 years old and faithfully falling more in love with Jesus every single day that God would not allow anyone to be a flash in the pan, but rather every single one of us faithful to the end. And this happens when our habits shape our hearts to increasingly trust our identity in God 
and to increasingly trust in who God is. Now, up until now, as we've been looking at Daniel 1, it, it might seem like this whole chapter is mostly about Daniel and his resolve. But we must not miss that it is God who is supplying all that Daniel needs in order to be resilient in the face of cultural coercion. My last point is that God supplies all that we need. Now, God is all over this passage. You, you could read it and you might wonder, okay, God, have you lost control? God, have you given up on your people? Verse 2 tells us the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. You might wonder, God, have you abandoned Daniel and his friends to the Babylonians? Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. You could wonder, okay, how, how did Daniel and his friends succeed? Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. God gave, God gave, God gave. Daniel and his friends succeed in their commitment because of the strength and the blessing of the Lord. There are no ultra-committed Christians. There's only a committed God. I'm not sure where you find yourself this morning, trusting God or doubting God. But we all need to hear God is committed to you. God is committed to you. God gives to you. He gave his one and only son for you who lived a perfect life of obedience, died a substitutionary death on a cross and rose victorious from the grave. And by grace, through faith in Christ, God gives us a new identity. God sees us as in Christ. We are united to Jesus. And all that is true of Jesus is true of us. We are in him that is our identity. Our culture tells us to curate our own brand to, or to adopt certain brands for our identity, but I can tell you living that way is exhausting and it puts you on shaky ground because culture shifts and certain brands come and go. But being in Christ is an identity that cannot be shaken. And it's an identity that will never be taken as we live into Godward habits and rhythms that remind us of who God is and who we are, it will cultivate a rootedness in our identity of being in Christ. We won't be a flash in the pan, but I think we will all know that from start and, and to the end of all things, what matters is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, founded upon his grace and his love. Now, as Christians, we not only receive an identity that cannot be shaken, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Look at verse 21. It feels like a throwaway verse, but it's not. Verse 21 says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It says, 80 years later, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king because Babylon has been conquered by Persia. And so Cyrus is now king because he's the king of Persia. Verse 21 is declaring the power of the gospel and the reality of who is the true victor in this spiritual warfare. Daniel, this teenage kid, is captured by the king of the universe, and yet he outlasts the powerful Babylonian empire. Babylon is gone. Fragile Daniel is still on his feet because the kingdoms of the world will come and go. They will rise and they will fall, but the kingdom of God will never crumble. We live in a kingdom that is unshakable. And by God's grace and in God's power, we will stand in faith in this strange land.
waiting to inherit a kingdom that is forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would root and establish us deep in who we are in you. We are, we are getting indoctrinated when we don't even know it. A culture is, is persuasive and coercive. Sometimes we know it, but oftentimes we don't. And so we come to you and just in this moment, this one hour, and we ask that you remind us of who we are in you. If there are those here this morning that are not sure of their faith, Lord, I pray that they would hear who they can be in you, what this identity can be as they receive it from you, Jesus. And, and Lord, an identity that we all know is unshakable and a kingdom that is unshakable in a world and culture that is fragile. But in you, Lord, we stand. In you, we live and move and we have our being. So root us now in who we are in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.